Hi, I'm Steve Barsh, Managing Partner at Dream Adventures. I'm joined today by Mel Shakir, Managing Director of Dream Adventures Secure Tech Team. And we would like to welcome you to Dream It Live. It's great to have a co-host today with Mel. And Mel, let's dive in. All right. Well, today's topic is startups and M&A. Well, how, why, and when startups are acquired. When speaking to startups about their exit strategy, it almost invariably is acquisition. So to talk about M&A, we have invited two cybersecurity heavyweights, Amit Yoran and Mike Wiscuso, to share their unique insights on the dynamic and high stakes process of startup M&A. Well, Amit, uh, he's a chairman and CEO of Tenable. Uh, he was the pre previously the president of RSA, where I got to know him and worked for him as director of NetWitness, a company he had founded, which was acquired by RSA. But at RSA, Amit was at the center of mega M&A transactions with EMC and Dell. And prior to that, Amit had founded Riptech, which he sold to Symantec. Well, among his many achievements, another one that really stands out is National Cybersecurity Director for the US Department of Homeland Security. Mike Riscuso, Mike uh, is a co-founder and former CEO of Carbon Black, which merged with Bit9 in 2014 and is now part of VMware. In my current role as MD for DreamIt SecureTech, I've been relying more and more on Mike for advice. Amit, Mike, thank you and welcome to DreamIt Live. Well, I'm streaming in from Philadelphia. I'm actually just down the road from Mel. Uh, I'm excited to uh, to be here today and also to help with the uh, Dream of Cybersecurity Accelerator, which has produced a, a, a litany of great, great early startups in the cybersecurity space. And uh, looking forward to the next cohort, Mel. I'm coming from uh, from Reston, Virginia, Northern Virginia, just just a stone's throw from Dulles Airport, which used to be an important part of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and I've seen you there many times. Uh, so let's get started with the first topic. Top reasons M&A deals are done, right? You have both done small deals and large deals. How does M&A vary based on the stage of a company? Amit, do you want to take that? Yeah, listen, the, the obvious criteria is, you know, the size of the company, the larger the, uh, uh, the momentum, the larger the revenue base, the larger the customer base, the larger the market opportunity, the, the larger the transaction. And, and so in many cases, you know, like what you saw with, uh, with uh, Carbon Black, as a company with a lot of momentum, a lot of customers, a lot of revenue, and a very large market opportunity. In other cases, you have technologies which have varying degrees of corporate development around them or in various stages of corporate development. So you may have some very intriguing technology, but doesn't have a mature distribution mechanism around it. And, and, and so in many of those cases, you have acquisitions in which acquirers think, hey, I've got a great captive customer base, which aligns with the value proposition of this technology, and, and we can do an acquisition and bring it to market and rapidly grow grow revenues, revenues with it. So you see uh, acquisitions along a wide variety of values, which may be in many cases driven by the size of the market opportunity and the maturity of the company being acquired. Okay, excellent. I mean, and actually that was going to be part of my second question as well. So I'm going to turn back to Mike and uh, you know, ask uh, him to uh, uh, answer, you know, what are the top reasons an acquirer will do a deal? Dovetail back on what Amit just said probably. Yeah, Amit actually covered it pretty well, but just to take a step back, I mean, uh, a lot of companies are, are bought and some companies are sold. And so if you're 
a company that is looking to be bought, it's obvious that you want to be bought, not sold. And the reason that companies are bought, not sold, is because they've added significant value to their customers and their shareholders. And usually that happens over time. So as Amit said, uh, the longer the company's been around, the more value they've been able to uh, uh, you know, accumulate and deliver to their customers, the bigger they are, and so therefore the bigger the transaction. And so when you look at value, you, it's not just ARR. Um, it's not just customers. You could be uh, creating a really influential piece of intellectual property where you could have assembled a, an incredible rock star team. Uh, but when the acquirer looks at you and your company, what they're looking at is what value do you have that fits into their strategy? So as they meet with their executive team and they're looking at their strategy for the coming years, uh, they're asking themselves the question of which pieces do we want to build which pieces do we want to buy and which pieces do we want to partner? And uh, they're making that decision for any one of those distinctions where they think, hey, this is something that we want to buy. Uh, that's where they start surveying the market and saying, hey, who out there has the value that we would like to acquire? Okay. Okay. And so what I'm hearing you say, Mike, is that you know, many of the M&A deals are really driven by corporate strategy, right? Now, of course, there are uh, other things like competitive pressures. There might be some market conditions or trends. Uh, you know, that might be driving those deals as well. Uh, you also talked about, you know, startups are bought and sold. Uh, you know, how does it influence the process if the deal is initiated uh, by a seller? That's a great question, Mel. And, and again, right at the top of the decision tree is, are you being bought or are you being sold? And, um, you know, I think uh, it may go without saying, but I'll say it just to make sure that um, you don't want to be sold. You want to be bought. And, um so a, a company that needs to be sold, it's, it's traditionally viewed at as a, a fire sale or an aqua hire. And so you limit the number of potential avenues that you can go um, because the value is, is viewed as a little differently than if someone was actively trying to, to buy you. Um, and so traditionally, uh, when a company is sold, uh, a banker is involved and a banker might be the first introduction to the acquiring company that this company is on the market and looking for a home. And that process typically signals that this company is being sold versus uh, versus being bought. Okay. Amit, you want to add anything to that? Yeah. And, and maybe going back to sort of the heart of the discussion at hand uh, for entrepreneurs looking at exits, uh, thinking about M&A opportunities, I guess, you know, the, the thing that I would focus on is it's control as, a, as an entrepreneur, as a founder, as a CEO of a startup, you want to control your destiny. And controlling your destiny means achieve high growth, but control your burn. Controlling your destiny means turning the company profitable, or if not profitable, at least turn the company so that you're free cash flowing uh, and, and you're producing cash not burning cash and you have the under previous rounds of funding or whatever, you have the, the ability to turn the corner. When you control your destiny, then you have the option of being acquired, but you're not being put in a position where you're forced to sell. As Mike said, that's not where the great outcomes occur. Or you're not being forced into additional funding where you aren't dictating the terms or you aren't, don't have a, a, a gun to your head saying you've got to raise the capital or or face very, very dire consequences. So control your destiny by focusing on the business and the right right will come. Well, thank you for that advice. Um, Steve, you want to drive the next topic? 
we'll go next about how can a startup look most attractive. And I appreciate your comments so far that you've both made. And before we get into this, I just want to give you a little bit of a preamble from a Dreamit point of view. The number of uh, startups that pitch us, and we ask them, what's your vision? And they'll say, well, my vision is to be acquired by. It's like, that's not a vision. <laughs> that's an exit strategy. And they mm -hmm. seem to get confused. So as we go into this, I just wanted you to think about like what we think about. It's like, don't build a company as a startup. Don't build a company for exit. Build a company to dominate a market, build revenue, build it up really well. And when you do that, the right exit opportunities will come along, but don't build the exit. And I'd love to, if you guys can build on that concept. So how can a startup look most attractive? Like when you're in M&A mode, what's going to look most attractive? You talked about this a little bit. Is it, is it customer growth, revenue growth? Is it technology? So I'm a startup. I want to be attractive when you're at RSA or you're at Tenable or Mike as you move into your next thing. What makes a startup most attractive and how do I dress myself up so I'm most attractive? Um, Mike, do you want to take the first or either one? Oh, I'd, I'd love to, Steve. Okay. I'd love to, honestly. And we're just going to start with where you started, which is, uh, look, build value. Continue to build value for your customers. Continue to build value for your, state, uh, your shareholders. Uh, and the rest will take care of itself, honestly. Just continue to build value. Continue to manage your business, as Amit uh, mentioned, so that you're not forced into a sale uh, you know, at a time when you don't want to. So continue to build value within your customer base, and the rest will happen. There's always a market for great companies. You never have to worry about, at Carbon Black, we, we, when we crossed 250 ARR, we were like, oh, now we're not sure. 250 million. A million ARR. Yeah, sorry. Uh, that was million was implied. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, but we, you know, we we had this conversation. Uh, oftentimes, say, hey, you know, we're limiting the number of people that could potentially be interested in us. And our CEO Patrick Morley kept reminding us, no, no, there's always a buyer for a great company. Mm -hmm. There's always a buyer for a great company. And during our time at, at Carbon Black, we did acquire three different companies, ranging from a million to a hundred million. And going back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, we had a strategy and uh, we had a corporate strategy of delivering more value to our customers, delivering better value to our customers. And we were having that build by partner conversation. And we would always look for who was the best. That's where we would start. So if we wanted to move into the cloud, which was a conversation we had at Carbon Black, uh, delivering our endpoint protection from the cloud, uh, we looked at all of the, all of the companies and said, who is the best at delivering this from the cloud? And we started there. We always started with the best. And so the best way to be attractive to an acquirer is to be the best. And the best way to be the best is to continue to add value to your customers. Well, I mean, anything to add to that? How uh, do I look attractive? You know, sometimes it's boring when you hear a panel and, and, and people agree with one another. But, you know, I, I think Mike, I think you might hit, hit the nail on the head. You want to be the best. You want to be the best in your market, especially in a field like cybersecurity where you have enterprise buyer, the buyers, they test the products, they're highly special. They want to make sure that the products are, are best of breed and they're smart enough to differentiate, to understand the difference in capability between the number one, number two, number three, number three players. So, you know, follow that vision, be best at what, be the absolute best at what you do. And, and the only thing I would add to it is kind of stay, stay focused. There's a natural desire for startups to say, oh, we could do that. We could do that. Just we could add that in. And and for everything that you do, it takes you one step further away from being the absolute best in that one focused area that, that is your passion. 
and where you where you should be hitting as absolutely as, as you can. And it makes you less attractive to potential acquirers down the road because if you do a whole bunch of things, acquirers typically want to buy the best at a particular function um, mm -hmm. with technology. So I'd say remain focused, pursue that vision, uh, and execute. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is there one or two things just to add to that quickly? What would scare away? You know, I want to re look as attractive as possible. Can you think of one or two? I mean, you've done so many in all the different roles you've been in. I mean, what are one or two things that really would scare away a buyer potentially, if that makes sense? You know, and, and I'll I'm going to give a soft answer. Is the thing okay? The thing that matters most, but you know, when evaluating uh, a startup or you know, companies very infrequently make. Mm -hmm technology purchases. If you're going to spend $10 million, $50 million, $100 million, $800 million, you know, whatever you're going to spend acquiring, mm -hmm. uh, you're not just acquiring a piece of code that they've already developed. What you really want to do is you want to acquire a passionate entrepreneurial team that can continue to lead, continue to develop, that can enhance uh, uh, the, the, the company not just the one they're buying, but also help infuse that sort of startup entrepreneurial adrenaline into mm -hmm. a, a acquiring company if, if they're doing it right. So, you know, when you see uh, and when you're talking to acquirers, it's not just, oh, look at the cool things my technology does. It's that passion and that alignment of culture and vision that I think makes you even more attractive. And I know it's an intangible, the balance sheet will be the balance sheet, the number of customers right. there are, you know, the bankers will sell all day long. The way you right. as an entrepreneur value is you show that passion and that cultural alignment with vision for where that larger acquirer wants to go and that you can help drive them there. Okay, okay. great. Let me let me just so we cut it, I'm gonna move into the next section. Mel, are you okay? I was gonna move into the yeah, next yeah. topic. That's okay. Mm -hmm. So let's move into the next topic and and you touched on it a little bit, but I think it's really important. So a lot of startups are watching, a lot of entrepreneurs are watching. I think the important thing for them to understand is where do deals originate, right? Are they because you meet each other at a bar, which doesn't really happen right now for COVID? <laughs> you know, is it because there was originally a partnership, a strategic investor? Was there a banker involved? Could you talk about your experience? Where do, when you're doing M&A, where do the deals come from? Yeah, I'll start if you don't right? mind me. Sure. Um, so I think most of the deals that we've been a part of, whether we're on the side of being acquired or we were acquiring, they started, the conversation started with partnership. So almost every single one started with partnership. And through the second and the third and the fourth conversation, you start to really see what the real intention is because mm -hmm. uh, a larger company approaching you for partnership could in fact mean they want to partner. Uh, mm -hmm. It could also mean that they're looking to buy and they're trying to get up to speed as quickly as possible, uh, or it could mean that, uh, that that they're looking to build um, and you know they're just trying to figure out what to avoid. Um, and so it is a little bit dicey, and I've heard this conversation many times over with the founders that I speak to on a daily basis of like, hey, so-and-so reached out and they want to talk to us about partnering. Should we be worried? And, uh, you know, the answer is maybe it's tough to give an all, you know, a clear answer on that front, but right. almost every single buy that I've been part, in fact, every single buy that I've been part of started with the, the, the concept of a partnership, because if a partnership isn't going to work out, mm -hmm. uh, there's no way that a marriage is going to work out. So, uh, if you can't date, you're not going to do well as, as married. So every single one started out as a partnership and then 
if they're, you know, from the third or fourth conversation, you get to see if it is in fact a partnership, you're going to be dealing a lot with the sales folks. If it is in fact a buy decision, you're going to be dealing a lot with the execs. And if it's, if it's a build, you're going to end up seeing a lot of engineering. Um, and so you can kind of see where the corp dev conversation goes in the third right. or fourth meeting to know which of the three it might be. Ahmed, your experiences and where, where do most of your deals originate from? Yeah, no, I, I think much right. I think most of the deals are complementary. It's a partnership. It's mm-hmm. an a lot of them start in the field, a smart or uh, you know engaged sales rep or seeing momentum between sales teams and, and seeing leverage in the field. And then that makes its way back to, hey, we've got to formalize this partnership. We're doing really great things together. I think that's the most natural path the complimentary technology. I'm also part of a, a, a small number of deals. Somebody uh, is competing head-to-head in the field. They look at this uh, startup and say, wow, those guys are moving fast. They're running circles around us from a technology and capability standpoint. If we had that best of breed market-leading technology in the hands of our sales force, our go-to-market army, we could mm-hmm. drive some some meaningful numbers uh, as opposed to being a number two, three, or four has-been in a in a segment of the market. So I, I would just say that there's, it's less frequent, but those direct head-to-head competitive uh, acquisitions occur too. Interesting. Okay, I just want to point out two quick things from what both of you said. I was going to ask you the question, but I think you already answered it, right? I didn't hear anybody mention because an M&A firm reached out to me. I didn't hear about an investment bank, and I apologize for all investment bankers or M&A <laughs> firms that might be watching today. This is early stage stuff too, right? This isn't, right. This isn't you know, Dell buying it. Then, then bankers typically get involved, but in early stage, it's what we see too. And I also just want to point out quickly, the first company I built after college, we sold to a much bigger company. And like you had said, it's like they came in and they said, wow, you know, if we had your DNA and what you guys are doing, we compete head to head all the time against you. You always win. And oh, by the way, where is everybody? It's like, we're only 12 people. We have 40 people competing against you. It's like, well, it's just, it's a world-class team. So it's kind of funny that you had said I'd seen that personally. Okay, um, Mel, let's move on to the next topic. Why don't you pick up the next topic? We'll keep going. Sure, yeah. Uh, let's talk about you know, how do you maximize value, right? We've touched on it a little bit, but if you look at 2019, we saw some companies get huge multiples. Proofpoint paid 120 million uh, for a company that had 1 million in revenue. Uh, Palo Alto paid 46.7x for Demisto. VMware paid 8.9x multiple for Carbon Black. So it's a two-part question here. Uh, you know, how can a startup maximize value during the M&A process? And what possible magic confluence of stars came together for such big exits? Any one of you wants to go first? Steve, thanks for throwing the bankers under the bus. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you didn't mention the lawyers or the auditors. but We're gonna, we'll come to the lawyers. We were coming there, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll get there. Um, we'll get there when, when the audience turns PG-13. Uh, the... Look, these are not rational transactions by any measure. You can't look at a spreadsheet and say, it makes sense to do, to acquire this. Uh, Like, I I think Mike used the analogy earlier of, you know, a girlfriend, a wife, whatever the the context was. These are irrational behaviors. And guess what? If you're an entrepreneur, you're already, you've already proven you're an irrational actor because if you looked at the, the, the data points, no rational person would ever do do a startup, right? Your, your probability of success is pretty horrific. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know these are not rational decisions. And just like your decision to start a company might not have been entirely rational, you're following your passion, your gut, your vision. A lot of acquisitions happen because 
the CEO of an acquiring company uh, has this belief that this market is phenomenal and that his or her company can drive phenomenal success through this acquisition. And that's when you sell, and I was saying earlier, it's not just, hey, we've got revenue, we've got uh, customers, we've got the best technology, we have this feature. It's about selling the vision of what you can do against the market opportunity and the acquirer's ability to help you scale, help help you execute. And I think when you when you align those things, you get the best outcome. And oh, by the way, sometimes a banker can help uh, you know uh, make it a more competitive process. But getting that irrational behavior from a buyer through selling the vision is really how you optimize the outcome. Okay, so of course the seller has to you know sell that vision. But the buyer, right, he has to go and sell that vision to his board because when he says, I'm going to pay 46.7x valuation, the board has to start believing that, you know, that truly those synergies are so strong that you're going to hit those numbers, right? Because at the end of the day, they have to make a profit. Right? It has to make sense for the company. Okay. Uh, uh, anything you want to add to that, Mike? There's a there's we could do a whole uh, a whole episode just on this I think um, but you know I think there's big there's big needle movers and then there's small um, we already talked about the bankers uh, their role in the is largely on the small needle moving side so get you an extra buck get you uh, whatnot they can introduce stocking horses to help uh, boost that value but the big rocks are what you just said Mel uh, and Amit said earlier which is uh, you are the best so there's a premium for the best. There's always a premium for the best uh, because it's hard to be the best. And so if you're the best, you get a premium. And then the second premium really happens with uh, figuring out how that you being the best makes them the best. Because uh, it's not always obvious uh, mm -hmm. that a company that is acquired is all of a sudden going to come in and make the new company great at that. Uh, and so one of the things that uh, one of the small tidbits of advice that, uh, that, that I was going to give here is just, you got to treat this like a huge enterprise deal. You have to have an internal champion who's giving you the feedback of all the board members and who likes it and who doesn't like it and why they like it and why they don't like it, showing you the internal spreadsheet so that you can say, oh no, we think we can drive even more rep productivity because here's why, right? So you, having that internal champion inside the walls of your acquirer who wants this deal to happen, who would benefit significantly for this deal to happen mm -hmm. and have that person relaying back to you how they're coming up with the value so that you can help them help, uh, help their team see the really big opportunity in front of them is going to be absolutely paramount. If you do not have an internal champion and Amit and I both know this, uh, just, just in terms of getting customers. If you do not have an internal champion, not only are you not gonna get max value, but you probably aren't gonna get the win at all. And so having that internal champion is the way that I've seen uh, companies get the maximum value because you're, you're able to translate how you by yourself being the best translates to the acquirer now being the best and all the benefits that they get associated with that. Okay, I'd like to just dovetail a little bit uh, on that response as well. Uh, uh, and also ask whether startups, uh, when when is it optimal for startups to hold out for a better price, right? Is it uh, until at least there are multiple bidders or they're super confident about the traction and, uh, you know, just share some insights, right? Anything that uh, you might have experienced personally. Yeah, I, you know, it's, I think there's a, there's a data-oriented approach here to say, okay, well, you know, given the size of the business now, 
given the growth trajectory, our expected growth trajectory, what is the you know the revenue base, the the profitability, the AR look like, you know, a year from now, two years from now, how does the competitive landscape change? Ultimately, this boils down to, in many cases, a question of confidence and and risk tolerance. And so, in many cases, you get to a certain point and you say, hey. This is the right, or this is you know somebody's paying a takeout premium, you know, at this point, and it just makes makes sense from a risk reward trade off. Okay, all right. Yeah. I think yeah, being aware of the competitive buyouts, right? That is that is an important point that you are making as well. That's the data driven part of it. Yeah. Amit said it spot on when he said mm-hmm. it's how confident are you? Okay. Um, when you when you get to the point where you're not really sure how you're gonna justify your multiple, then okay, maybe, maybe it's time because that opens your brain to, well, I can't see how I can do it myself, but I see how I can do it with Tenable. Uh, I don't see how I can do it by myself, but I see how I can do it with this other company. That's when you start saying, okay, hey, look, maybe now's the time to join up with somebody else. Maybe now's the time to really start thinking seriously about those offers. And I'll just sort of put a little bit of a plug for um, straight talk for startups. Uh, they have a whole section on on getting liquidity. And I, I have found with my conversation with founders that a lot of these conversations focus on liquidity more so than confidence. You can always get liquidity. If you need some of your uh, some of your stock off the table, you can always get it. Don't sell your company because you're looking at, oh, I'm I'm on paper worth 20 million bucks and I would die if I lost it. There's always liquidity options. Look at it more in terms of your confidence. When is it that you think, hey, I'm not so sure I can justify the next round of funding. I'm not so sure I can see around the next corner. I'm not so sure I know what to do next, but I, I have confidence that if, if I joined up with Tenable, I can do it. Uh, that's when you start saying, hey, maybe we should take these things seriously. And again, Straight Talk for Startups, part five, there's only five parts, but Straight Talk for Startups walks through how you might go about that. Um, but again, it all comes down to your confidence in the business. Steve, let's talk about deal structuring. Okay. I, I have a feeling you guys are going to say it's art, not science. What's the next question? But let's try to dive into some of the details. You know, there's the acquirer side and there's the being acquired side. So in deal structuring, you know, could you both maybe comment what are the top two or three most important terms for deal structuring, maybe for either the acquirer or the startup? Either either way. Amit, do you want to go first or either one? Whichever would like to go first. I'll, I'll, I'll give you my top three criteria for deal structuring, whether it's for a venture transaction, whether it's for an M&A transaction. Is this clean? Are the terms straightforward? I've seen so many transactions, whether it's M&A or venture funding, get sideways or post-deal regret, buyer's remorse, misalignment of, of objectives uh, because someone optimized for price versus cleanliness. Keep everything simple, keep everything clean, driving. Number two is deal cleanliness, and number three is deal cleanliness for <laughs> reasons, times, multiple factors. But uh, yeah, so when it comes to earnouts and this and that, it's just I would run from those 10 times out of 10. I'd rather pay a premium or give up on a, of, of, of a couple of bucks to keep it clean and simple. Got it. Okay. Mike? Thoughts to add to maybe the top two or three things in, in deal terms to worry about or the most important for either side of the transaction? 
Look, I think Amit is hit the nail on the head in terms of cleanliness. Um, the other thing that I think is more of a subjective, and you already mentioned it's a bit of an art versus science, but um, you got to feel like this is a spot that you and the people you've been working with for the past 10 years are going to enjoy. If, if you can't if you can't look at yourself in the mirror, you're going to have regret. <laughs> it's just, that's just all there is to it. Um, and uh, one of the hardest things about being in a, a meet seat or any one of our seats in a leadership position is that there's a lot of people depending on you and you're making a decision for a lot of people. And uh, that that's, if you're any sort of human, it's difficult to sleep at night if you know that you went for the highest price and you uh, committed them all to purgatory. So although it's a bit more subjective, Steve, uh, beyond cleanliness, I mean, you got to really believe. You got to really believe mm-hmm. that this is the spot. Um, and if you don't, but others do, that's okay too. Uh, but you know, the team, you got to feel like you're doing the team a good service. Okay. Three, right? It's customers, employees, and shareholders, and, and the mm-hmm. transaction has to has to really balance balance. Okay. Success. I mean, while, while your mic is hot, so to say, there's something else you mentioned I wanted to bring up, and, and I have an opinion on it, but I'll just leave it alone. I'd rather hear what you guys have to say. You know, you mentioned about earnout and upfront payment. In deal structuring, again, lots of startups watching, lots of entrepreneurs. Somebody says, hey, I'll, I'll pay you $2 million cash upfront and $18 million earnout or whatever. Key, just what's your experience with upfront payments versus earnouts? I... Listen, personally, I'd rather see a time-based uh, value creation. And okay. if you're if you're aligned culturally and you believe in the people you're acquiring, you, and 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 you're, there's some uh, misalignment on price, you create some kind of time-based value. Give them you know options, RSUs, what what have you, to stick around to to build this thing with you okay. going forward in the creation of value. When you start creating an artificially elevated purchase price, or you're trying to shoot that gap between, you know, at bid and ask, and you're doing earnout, what happens post-acquisition is you've got a segment of your, instead of all being part of one team, you know, rowing in, in complete synchrony, you've got some portion of the team whose objective is to grow this revenue and this product line, come hell or high water as their sole objective and a lot of money on the line. And the rest of the company rowing in a slightly different direction, and those uh, and those uh, gaps exacerbate themselves with pressure and time and everything else. And so, what was in your control as a startup, how your marketing and, and how your message is spun, and how your sales team is comped, and how and, and, and our integration features prioritized in the roadmap versus your standalone roadmap, those things start becoming incredible points of contention if you aren't really. Line. So I loathe the concept of, of, of burnouts and, and things like that. I'd rather pay a premium, have a structure, and move forward together and execute. Okay. Mike, thoughts on that? Uh, earnouts yeah. versus upfront payment, time-based things, that kind of thing. And by the way, for those of you watching, if you don't know, uh, Amit said an RSU, restricted stock unit. It's similar to a stock option, but different. And when it gets, comes out, it's less. And when it comes out, it's taxes, ordinary income. Consult your tax advisor. Anyway. Um, Mike, thoughts, earnouts versus upfront payment? Yeah, I don't want to muddy the water here. Amit nailed it. Um, the the friction associated with earnouts. Look, if you're going to do anything worth it, uh, it's going to be three years of an earnout, and so much could happen in three years. Uh, you don't want to be bound by an agreement you made 24 months ago to do this particular thing when clearly the world is different. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, Amit's, Amit's concept of time-based uh, earnouts, if you're going to do an earnout, 
it's not the worst thing in the world. I don't, I don't loathe it as much as the meat does maybe, but, um, but, you know, creating milestones makes it really, you're just fraught with error. Okay. Yeah. In, in my experience, right. So uh, actually went through one of the M&As where there wasn't an out. Luckily things worked out, uh, but we have seen earnouts go sour, right. Uh, for, for the most part, I would say. So I would be, I would agree with you 100% on that. Cool. There is one last thing I want to talk about within this topic of deal structuring and explain. And that last thing is, what's been your experience for our two guests around startup investors, VCs? When you're going through this process, can they help? Can they hurt? Do they get in the way? What role do they play? And I'm going to take my headphones off as you guys answer that question. <laughs> no, just kidding. I'd uh, love to hear your thoughts about startup investors. Again, there's lots of startups watching today. How does the VC help hurt? What's their role? Could either one of you address that or both? Yeah, I'll start, me, and then you can yeah. go. Um, uh, so, I, I, look, I think investors and, and VCs tend to focus on it a little bit more than management does. So you, you don't be surprised if your VC is bringing up, hey, who would a potential M&A tar- you know, target be at the moment? Who would potentially mm-hmm. buy you at this moment? Uh, they're not losing trust in you. They're just trying to make sure that, uh, that you're thinking about it. And that you're at least in the back of your mind, you're focused on it. So don't be surprised if your VC or your investor asks you the question. Um, it's their job to make sure that, as a fiduciary in the in the business, that they're um, you know that they're making sure that there is some exit opportunity for you and the rest of the shareholders. Um, but in general, investors tend to bring it up a little bit more often than management does. Uh, secondly, the, if if they're a, even if they're a relatively new investor, they've got plenty of other experiences with other startups, and they may have an experience with a, a meet attainable and say, "Hey, look, uh, a meet would be a great opportunity for you guys. We did a great deal with him last year, and we we highly recommend them as a buyer versus somebody else. Ooh, we, hey, we had a deal where they weren't very good, and so." They can they can give you that pattern recognition that they can give you in so many other aspects of your business, but uh, specifically in M and A, that the, some of the intangibles that, that maybe a banker might provide ordinarily, the, the VCs and the investors can uh, can give you that subjective point of view that maybe you don't know or wouldn't know unless you'd been through it before. Yeah, just, yeah. You just when I thought we were hit rock bottom talking about the auditors, the lawyers, not <laughs> bring up the VCs. Uh, you know, the, the typical pitch from a VC to a startup is, look, we've done this before. We can help you. We're going to add value. We're going to be in this in this with you. And, uh, you know, having not only my own experiences, but also, you know, signing up, having sat on the boards of, you know, a dozen or more uh, different startups and, and many friends uh, who have, have been through the cycle with VCs. Uh, VCs aren't going to build your business. You're going to build so going in eyes wide open about what to expect, what you're going to get, what you're not going to get. The the real uh, VCs that, that I think are, are adding the most value are the ones that cause you to think differently. They're asking you tough questions. They're 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 asking those questions in a way that isn't uh, isn't condescending and insulting, but they're 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 forcing you to think about your business. Mm-hmm. And landscape and the macro environment and the customer and the market dynamics differently than you're used to thinking. And look, they're not going to know your industry or your products as well as you do, but they're going to question you. And if, if you have a great relationship, 
they can cause you to think differently. And that diverse thinking, I think, is incredibly healthy for entrepreneurs uh, and, and healthy for, for companies. I would use sort of final thought is there is a uh, quantum, you know, you, you sometimes hear vulture capitalists and the evils of VC. And, and mm-hmm. There's a real delta between uh, two different factors. One is, are you dealing with, uh, you know, the, what is the quality of the VC? There's a lot of JV players out there, which are, can be quite harmful to, to entrepreneurs and companies. They're following a playbook they don't really understand and so on uh, and so forth. And, and, and so I think that really matters. And, and the second is how well aligned you are with, with the VC. It's almost like getting acquired. Do you really want to be in bed with this person? Do you view through the, the world through the same lens? Because you're going to have thorny conversations and they may be about, we need to raise more money. We need to burn less money. We need to burn more money. We want to hire this guy. We want to fire this guy. We want to bring in a new CEO. We want to do all these things. And some of those conversations are going to get thorny. And making sure that you really believe, trust, and can have constructive and and even healthy arguments and disagreements with your VC is is incredibly important. So do do your homework and your background checks, uh, not just with with their references, but with other entrepreneurs you may know where they've invested and those companies have been successful and how have they been ha- behaved when companies went sideways or went through tough right. times. And, and it's just really, really uh, helpful for an entre- entrepreneur to go in eyes wide open. Two, two quick comments on that, right? You know, it's, you earn your stripes when the chips are down, right? That's where it's, it's, and you're right to talk with an investor or startups that have uh, gotten money from an investor. What happened when things went sideways? The one other thing I just wanted to add in deal structuring and when a VC is involved that I found it's, it's when the entrepreneur finally understands the capital stack piece of crap that they've put together over five or seven years. Well, we did a note and a note fall by safe with a cap safe, with a bridge round, with uh, um, the next series A that had these preferences and then there was participating preferred. And then when they go to try to exit, they're like, wait a second, there's a $70 million transaction and I as the entrepreneur am walking away with $800,000. How did that happen? And VCs are like gonna protect their position. and and. I think it's really important. It's one of the things that DreamIt does, all the managing directors, all of us, when we have our entrepreneurs going through and they're raising money and they come up with kind of crazy amounts they're going to raise. We're like, wait, do you understand what's going to happen if you don't structure this correctly eventually? Um, So it's really important. And you don't want to get that education when you're signing an M&A deal. Um, You want to get it earlier on. So anyway, let me go on to the next topic. I want to just be careful on time. The next topic I'll take, and then I'm going to hand it back to Mel. But the next topic is M&A tricks and traps. Just in general, Maybe each one of you, besides um, having a clean deal, got that one from me, but what are the top two to three mistakes that either startups or acquirers make or, or tricks or traps from either side? It could be a positive or a negative. I mean, I can give you a, a layoff one. Maybe you could time a, talk about like the time. You know, you're working on a deal and it's three months in the deal. Six, those kind of things, big tricks and traps that either side of the transaction that startups should really pay attention to, maybe acquirers. Mike, do you want to go first? Yeah, mine, I might not actually answer the direct question you're asking, okay. but I, I would like to uh, double down on what you said earlier, which is sure. I think one of the biggest traps that startups fall into in an M&A is just not having the right experience around the table. So uh, if it's your first time going through an M&A, it's like the first time going through a financing event. You have to have the right people around the table. That might be an investor that you really have built a great relationship with. It might be your general counsel that you built a great relationship with. It might be your independent director, whatever the case may be. Do not go through an M&A transaction without having the right 
experience around the table. They have to have had previous M&A on both sides of the table. Otherwise, I can guarantee you, you're going to have way more answers on the, on the tricks and traps than I have right now, because it's <laughs> going to happen. It's going to happen to you. And then I think, uh, you know, just one of the things that uh, I, I've always just kind of found a little interesting, and I can't say we didn't do the same thing at Carbon Black, but when acquiring another company, um, the first two uh, acquisitions we did, we focused a lot on ourselves and how would this benefit us? And, you know, what, what are you willing to give us? How are we going to benefit from this thing? And then in the third transaction, uh, what we did was we actually we scrapped that. We said, hey, look, that, that didn't work as well as we thought. And in the third transaction, which ended up being our biggest one, we focused most on the company we were buying. Uh, who are the people that were going to take on leadership roles? They were going to report to the CEO uh, that we wanted to influence us in a big, big way. Were they the right people? Um, and instead of focusing on this acquisition as just a, a black box company, we focused on the individual people and what what uh, role and responsibility did we want each of them to have and what level of influence did we need them to have in order to make this transaction a success. And it went way better. Uh, I remember going to the, the company when we announced that we were going to acquire and saying, hey, look, uh, you guys have 60 people in engineering by the end of next month, you're going to have 180. And, wow. uh, and, and, they, and they were you know, very skeptical. And we, we were very certain like this was the direction we wanted to go as a company. And the same leadership that they had, we're going to now inherit two, you know, two times as many people. And so I think one of the trips and tra traps that acquirers fall into is viewing the acquired company as an, a black box entity that all of a sudden they can like plug and play like a Lego or something. It's not like that. You're not going to get the best benefit out of it. And so if you're on if you're on the side of the transaction where you're being acquired and you're not hearing how your leadership is going to assume leadership roles in the new company, um, you know, that might be something that could cause you a little little caution. OK, Amit, to add tricks and traps, maybe two or three big tricks or traps you've seen on either side that startups should really pay attention to or acquires. Uh, I, I think Mike's, Mike's point is uh, is a great one, and got lots of war stories there. We can, we can have a beer and, and tell jokes about. Right. <laughs> <laughs> maybe after this, you, you, the only thing I would uh, you know maybe add is sort of the mindset from an entrepreneur about what is pre, what is the sort of transaction itself, and then what are my expectations. For from life and, and from an employment uh, reward perspective, post transaction, and, and sometimes you get egos, you get emotions, you get, and, and you just have to be very transparent and self-aware about what you're looking for, you know, throughout that continuum. What is for the transaction, and then what am I really looking for going forward? And, and that's true of, of uh, entrepreneur as well as, of course, acquiring company. Okay. Sounds good. Let me let me hand it back to Mel. We'll move into the next topic. Appreciate your thoughts on on tricks and traps. Mel, can you? Uh, I know you had one other thing you wanted to talk about. Absolutely, and this is my favorite topic, right? Uh, top cybersecurity M and A trends. Well, my background is in product. Uh, I know you guys love product. Uh, so, 2019, right? Uh, it was the year for endpoint security. Clear trend. We saw Carbon Black, uh, so forth, Semantic, and not to forget CrowdStrike IPO for 6.7 billion. Uh, BlackBerry acquired silence just the late 2018 for 1.4. So, Amit, I know that uh, every year uh, in December, late December, you kind of put out uh, you know your predictions. So this is your chance to kind of revise your predictions if you need to. 
<laughs> or a new prediction. The, the, project, the predictions are always right. They just aren't necessarily <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I think right now the COVID impact on technology is, you know, sort of partially understood. You know, I think everybody recognizes the work from home. Everybody recognizes the digital tra transformation, the, the, the shift to, to cloud. I think it's much, it's a much more profound shift than we really get a credit for. There's still these questions about return to work, return to office, return to normal. I think those types of things are going to be, I would say, temporary. But our behavior and our expectations of technology will have changed. So yes, maybe there will be more in office or some hybrid that will be for at least for years to come, if not sort of permanent uh, permanent change. So I think. You know, to me, the most important thing is understand uh, how technology landscapes are shifting, whether it's work from home, digital, digital transformation, but also, you know, what are the longer term trends with respect to SaaS, cloud, thin compute platforms, and how do all these things sort of fit, fit together over an extended period of time? So it's kind of a, a, a loosey answer. But these are non-trivial shifts that have just accelerated, you know, tenfold. Okay, Mike, you want to take the same question? Oh no, I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, honestly, I, I was joking with. We'll, a buddy we'll give of you mine. a chance to revise it towards the end of the year. How's that? Right. Yeah, I, honestly, I was joking with a buddy of mine that said, we, we were saying, hey, for ten years we've been calling for consolidation. For ten years, every year, we're like it's gonna, this is gonna be it, and now we have a prime moment where. Uh, COVID is affecting everything, and I, you know we basically said, "Hey, is, is now the time that we're going to see the, uh, the the consolidation that we've been forecasting for a decade?" And I don't know. <laughs> I literally have no idea. Um, but so we'll, I guess we'll see. But uh, it seems like consolidation is is got to happen. But over the course of the ten years, we've seen nothing but uh, fragmentation. So um, I guess don't follow my stock advice. All right, I'm going to ask one last question. And then um, we're going to go to Q and A. We want to reserve a little bit of time for uh, you know for the audience as well. Uh, you know the impact of giant cloud public providers like Microsoft, Amazon, Google, right? And they started off building hooks, uh, you know, for security. And and again, I'm referring to security. And it drew a lot of innovation. But since then, they have developed products and acquired companies. So what I'm thinking is, as your Sentinel, uh, AWS Security Hub, AWS Guard Duty, Inspector, uh, Google Chronicle. What do you think is going to be their impact on innovation? Um, any thoughts? Any one of you? Listen, for sure, these large infrastructure providers are going to are going to uh, have have a, a, a tremendous impact on how security uh, is performed going forward. But security security is always always changing and evolving. And you know, if you look back fifteen you know fifteen years or more, firewalls were a key security function. Firewalls are no longer consider a security function. They're now run by network operations and, and infrastructure teams, and, and security activities are much more on the bleeding edge. So I think you know a lot of the things that you can expect to see out of providers, in my uh, estimation, are going to be more sort of core infrastructure types of things. So great that they're putting more hooks into it. It's like uh, Microsoft saying they're you know, building security products, like good luck with that. You know, they'll, they'll build security products, they'll improve the security of their products, but you know, there's plenty of space, there's plenty of gap, it continues to move the needle on what our expectations are of the security industry, because 
even with the improvements that Microsoft have made, it's, you know, there's still a, uh, you know, uh, they leave a lot to be desired. I guess we can sort of leave it at that. So, you know, the infrastructure providers will have impact. They'll continue to mature things at more operations, scalability standpoint, but I think there will remain lots of space for the leading edge companies to deliver best of breed capability and help with meaningful gaps in security. Yeah. All right. What I'm hearing is that startups have nothing to be afraid about. There's going to be plenty of innovation. Uh, all right. So with that, I think we, uh, I'm just watching the clock. Um, let's move off uh, uh, to the you know, final set of uh, Q&A. We covered a lot of ground. Thank you again so much for your time. Steve, do you want to take us through the questions? Sure. Happy to. So we have a bunch of questions and I'm going to bring up the first question here. It's uh, not a daily double, an audio daily W. It says, is it ever safe to sell to a direct competitor? Either one of you could take it, you know, direct competitor approaches you, tenuous situation. Do you guys have thoughts? Direct, is it safe? So again, these are audience questions. M&A, ever sell safe to sell to a direct competitor? I think it Mike? depends on what your definition of safe is. Uh, there's an implication there that I'm reading into that maybe isn't supposed to be, but um I think, uh, as Amit already mentioned, um, there's a lot of times where a larger company will buy a direct competitor because uh, they're beating them in the field everywhere, and they want they want to figure out how to bring that that team and that technology in house and that thought process uh, in house. And um, it might make a lot of sense to join forces. I know when uh, Carbon Black and Bit Nine merged in 2014. Uh, Patrick and I both have a, a really funny story about how Patrick called me and said, Hey, uh, we should get together. And I was like, no, <laughs> like we should, we should have dinner sometime. No. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think, uh, it's safe to be skeptical of a direct competitor reaching out to you saying, Hey, what about partnering? Um, but you know, the carbon black bit nine merger actually worked out really well, not just for uh, bit nine, but carbon black and our customers. The market, uh, we did really well with that. A lot of people benefited from it, and uh, we were on a collision course. There's no doubt about it. And so, mm -hmm. I think it's from my experience, uh, especially in that transaction, uh, it was absolutely safe to sell to a direct competitor. But uh, you know, I was very skeptical in the initial conversations of what was the true intention of the call. Okay, Ahmed. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. I think the natural entrepreneurial reaction and. Mm -hmm. Skeptical, and, and I think that's healthy. Uh, at Tenable, we acquired Indigy, which was an OT security company. We had an industrial security product in the market, so we were a direct competitor. We looked at what they were doing. So, wow, this is light years ahead of, of what we've got organically, and the two can be very complementary. Uh, at Riptech, we were acquired by Symantec. They had a directly competitive managed security service offering, uh, and, and, and they you know, go on. So it is, it's counterintuitive, uh, be careful doing it, but there are lots and lots of examples where you have competitive takeouts. Okay, let me move into the next question. If you guys have, it looks like we have about 10 minutes of questions left. If you can stay on with us, if one has to drop off, we'll, we'll keep going. Here's your next question. Is there any such thing as the best time to exit? Thoughts? I think it's a tough question, but any such thing as the best time to exit? Well, I'll just plug uh, the Straight Talk for Startups again, just real yeah. quick. They, uh, the, the book we'll implies that. The that okay, I'm just going to say book, reference, website. We'll post it in the comments for sure. There it is. 
<laughs> okay, uh, straight talk for startups. Awesome. Um, and you know, the, by the way, I, uh, the reason I'm referencing the book is because I thought they did a good job of describing what the local maximum of your business is, and when you see a local maximum. Uh, I tried to frame it as, and I mean, tried to frame it as when you're, you know, not sure what to do with the business next. Um, you know, when you have a local maximum, implication would be, hey, maybe it is a good time to sell. Um, the tough part, obviously, is figuring out when you're at a local maximum. <laughs> right. Uh, right. And so I think it's easy to say, yeah, when you're at a local maximum, maybe you should think about selling. Uh, but I think it's way harder to know when that local maximum is. Um, and if you listen to a bunch of early stage VCs, you know, current um, mindset on this is you should never sell um, because the power law returns are such right. that the, the big guys are just going to keep getting bigger. And if you're on something hot and you can keep growing it, keep growing it. Um, but, you know, this is a this is a way more nuanced question than I think either a me or I or. Uh, you, Steve, or Mel could ever answer on this thing, but um, it is really tough to tell when the best time is to exit until many, many years later. Okay, let's keep going. All right, next question as we turn tear through these. How can a founder protect against being removed post-acquisition? Um, and I guess remove where, you know, do they have an employment agreement or, you know, you're into it. Any thoughts? How can a, protector, how can a founder protect against being removed post-acquisition? I guess I would just say, look, when you're going in as part of any transaction, you should have uh, incredible clarity through things like a, a contractual you know, relationship, a key employment agreement, something like that, that will tell you and, and outline the various scenarios, whether it's termination or, or sort of constructive termination where they you know, demote you but don't fire you or, or, or any of these sorts of things. So, you know, one is make sure you've got alignment of vision. Ask the tough questions, have clarity going going into the conversation or going into the relationship so that you know what, what to expect and then have the contractual uh, understanding of, of how things will play out in various areas. But once they buy your company, depending on, you know, earnouts and payouts and, and, and all those sorts of things, once they buy your company, they bought your, it's theirs, not yours. Okay. Bingo. Mike, thoughts? Bingo. Once they bought the company, it's theirs, not yours. And um, quite frankly, if uh, if they're trying to remove you, <laughs> you might not want to be there. It's a, you know, just it might not be the environment that you want to be in. So I agree with everything Amit said, which is uh, any good lawyer, any good transaction lawyer will make sure that you're well taken care of. Um, I will just throw a little bit of a nugget out there to anybody who's in the process now. It's way easier to talk about yourself as the founder last um, mm -hmm. because then you've got the emotional commitment to do the deal so you can uh, get a little bit more, so to speak, uh, for yourself. Uh, don't talk about yourself first. It comes off wrong and uh, you won't get the best deal. Okay, let's move to three more questions and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, so next question came in. Any red flags to be aware of with respect to paid M&A advisors, investment bankers, and lawyers? Wow, we got them. We could just add VCs into that. We'd have everybody. Okay, any red flags to be aware of if you have paid M&A advisors, investment bankers, lawyers? This is our next question. I, I think the biggest red flag is just, look, as soon as you engage a M&A advisor or an investment banker, and they're the ones going out and saying, 
hey, I'm engaged with this company, you have the for sale sign on your door. And um, mm-hmm. it's tough to get rid of that stigma. And everyone knows that the signal is that it's a fire sale. And so don't do it unless you're, you know, you're at that point. The only other time to do it is when you have a, a an LOI in hand that you're seriously considering. And you have a fiduciary duty to other stakeholders to make sure it's the best deal. Um, but that's a totally different conversation uh, in the sense of your M&A advisor or investment bankers going out and saying, hey, look, we have an offer and uh, we, you know, the company has retained us to make sure that this is the best offer and best place for the company. Um, and that's a totally different conversation. So, again, going back to literally the first thing we talked about, which is you want your company to be bought, not sold. Uh, if you do not have an LOI in hand from a different company or anticipate one in the next, you know, we're talking 36, 72 hours, engaging an M&A advisor or an investment banker um, sends a signal that it's a fire sale. Okay. Amit? Uh, I, I agree. And, and I think that's it. It's companies are, are bought or sold. I wouldn't engage with one uh, or, uh, you know, contract with one, you know, ahead of time because you don't want to be out there selling your company. The flip side is... I would invest in building a couple of relationships, right? You're, you, you want to court plenty. You want to understand who the different advisors are, where, what their relationships look like, how they pay, see how they perform, look at their track records. Because when you do get an LOI, you do want to engage with an advisor. In most instances, you can optimize your outcome uh, by doing it. Uh, that, that's what they do. You just do... Um, have the relationship and not scramble five, you know, uh, five hours before you're expecting to sign an LOI. So, you know, let them understand the business, understand you, get to know you and the team and how you think about the business and the market and the opportunity and who else other potential fits might be so they know who else to approach from it, you know, to make the deal competitive. And, and so they have value but build the relationship long ahead of the any, any transaction. And okay. I mean, you're not, just give me one second, Steve. Yeah. I mean, you didn't, you didn't say this out loud, but just, uh, um, my understanding is that during that courting period, that relationship period, you're not actually paying them. Oh yeah. So, yeah. So you would never retain them to build the relationship with them just to be abundantly clear. I mean, it's saying, Hey, you can go out and, and, uh, let an investment banker or an M&A advisor be around the, the company for years without paying them, but build that relationship. Mm-hmm. It, it's when you engage with them and start paying them is when you have right. another offer on the table or unfortunately you're hanging the for sale sign up front. Okay, great. Two more questions. I know we're, we're cutting really short on time here. Next question is from Adweight who asked it over YouTube. Question for you guys. What are the signals and clues that the founding team should know if they're at a juncture where they should make a decision, if they should continue to own and build or sell and exit. And I think this might be similar to that local maximum. Mike, if you want to start, you might hold up the book again. I, you know, how do you know? I guess is, is yeah, this is a question. summary from the previous portions of the conversation. Uh, you know, I think there's a conceptual academic local maximum, um, but really I, I think the, the bigger thing that you're gonna know is in your gut when you say, hey, I'm not so sure that I can justify another fundraise or justify my current valuation. Um, but if you change this about the business, uh, if I join up with Tenable, if I join up with somebody else, if I acquire this other company that's struggling or whatever the case may be, 
if some other inorganic thing changes in my business, I can see a, a, a much bigger future. I think that's probably the right time that you should, you should, you should start saying, Hey, okay, let's, let's start figuring out who that person is and whether they're interested. And again, the, the book straight talk for startups helps in that capacity. Like, okay, now you've made the decision that you want to, you want to join up with somebody else. How do you go and get their attention uh, without them thinking that you're for, you know, fire sale? Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Last question we're going to bring up, and it's not exactly an M&A question, but we can attack it very quickly from Jonathan, who asked it over YouTube. We're launching a service in the next week. We've been lucky to land huge partnerships and big leads that can give us traction early. What tips do you have to truly use this early wave in the best way? Guys, have thoughts? We can add too, but how do you use this early traction and big leads in the best possible way as they're just launching their product? Well, I'll just real quick add my little two cents and then Amit can sure. uh, uh, add his uh, nuggets of wisdom. If it's a huge partnership, just know that um, the partnership is only going to be as good as the level of effort you put to it. So just by inking a deal with a, uh, you know, a service provider or a value-added reseller or an OEM partner, um, you have to have someone on your side that is accountable for those results. The, the, the road is there. Now you got to drive down it. And I've seen lots of partnerships not do as well as anyone expected them to do because we just didn't have a dedicated resource to it. So I would be thinking just based off of what I know right now, hey, who is my dedicated resource for each one of these partners? Um, because it's only going to be as good as, uh, as the level of effort you put into it. Okay, Amit? No, I agree. I, I think that's right. If it's, if it's partnerships, it's the level of effort you put into it, how well aligned are, you, aligned are you, how much investment are you putting in to create leverage in the partnership? And, and that's, a, that's a continuous lift. It's not a, a one-time you know, launch and, and we're done. It'll all fall into place. And that's true, you know, during various stages of, of corporate development, from your early customers and design partners all the way through scale and go-to-market partners. Uh, it, a lot of these is is all about putting the appropriate level of investment to guide your development as a company. Okay, terrific. That is our last question. So let's wrap it up. Um, you know, Mel and I spent a lot of time. We really appreciate your time just prepping for this and getting ready for this talk today. We find that so many startups know so little about M&A, understand so little about their process. And we so greatly appreciate the both of you who've been through this so many times, sharing your knowledge, wisdom around M&A, startup transactions, acquirers. It was really, really helpful. We appreciate what you shared. Uh, Mel, it's been terrific to co-host a, a Dream It Live with you. We're going to do this more and more with co-hosts. So let me just wrap it up. Thank you to all of our guests. Thank you to Mel for co-hosting today, for Amit and Mike for streaming in today. I know these are really tricky times and both of you are extremely busy. For those of you still watching, we really appreciate you watching. For future Dream It Live episodes or to see past episodes, please go to dreamit.com slash live. Check out the Dream It Dose. We're cranking them out about once a week. They're these extremely short five to seven minute YouTube videos on highly pragmatic techniques that we find startups, um, mistakes that startups make again and again. So check out the Dream It Dose. Thanks, Mel. Thanks for everybody for watching. Again, Mike and Amit, thank you so much for joining us today, and we appreciate everyone's time. Have a great day and stay well. Thank you. Thank you. Good luck, everyone.